Well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verse 28 through 3, verse 10, the passage that Don read for us a moment ago. But I wonder this morning how many of you have been or are being affected right now by the dreaded C word. That word, once you hear it in your doctor's office, turns your world upside down. Some of you are going through cancer right now. I know that because the bulletin has your names in it. Others of you have experienced it in the past. Some of you have lost loved ones to this dreaded disease. Those of you that haven't experienced it yet are, so to speak, keeping your fingers crossed that the specter of this disease will not come and haunt and destroy your family. Cancer is a terrible enemy. When it strikes in our families, we do everything possible. We'll pay the best doctors, we'll buy the best treatments so that we can get rid of this thing that is destroying our bodies. And sometimes it works and you survive, and other times it doesn't. And cancer adds to the multitude of its slain because we're still searching for a cure. In our text this morning, the Apostle John is talking about an even more insidious, an even more widely spread, and an even more fatal disease, the disease of sin, the dreaded S-word. Its infection rate is 100%. Its mortality rate is 100%. And yet the good news is that there's already a cure for this cancer of sin, it is not an experimental cure. It is not a trial cure. It's not a cure that's going to give you two months or two years more to live. It's a permanent, forever cure for the cancer of sin. You see, because God hates the S word with a passion. Sin has been destroying His beautiful creation since the Garden of Eden. And so before the beginning of time, God made a plan to eradicate sin from his world, and it's that plan we want to look at in God's word this morning. As we look at it, the question that you need to be asking yourself, first of all, is do I know that I have this cancer? And second, am I applying God's plan of salvation in my life to get rid of this disease? John is writing to churches in Asia Minor who are in confusion because some people have gone around teaching a different cure than the one that Jesus taught. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. You see, the great deception of sin is that it's really not that big a deal at all. In fact, our culture sometimes looks at Christians and accuses us of obsessing with sin. They say, come on, get over it. Live life a little bit. Look at the positive side of life. Well, I had lunch with a friend this week who last year went for his annual physical, and his doctor saw a suspicious spot on his body. And you know what the doctor did? He said, I want you to take off every stitch of clothing you have. And the man told me, he looked me up one side and down the other, in and out, and did my friend say, doctor, you're too obsessed with cancer. No, he said, doctor, check me out, because if I have any cancer, I want you to treat it and get rid of it, because I'm afraid of cancer. And yet we treat sin like it's our pet dog. Our title this morning is Be Sure You Know God's Plan of Salvation and Apply It So That You Are Cured. And the key verse is chapter 3, verse 7. 
I mean, sorry, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. God is the lover of our souls. And he has a plan to completely heal us of the ravages of this disease of sin. And his plan involves getting rid of every sign, every vestige, every scrap, every hint, every trace, and every smell of sin in our lives so that we can be made whole again. As I look out, I see some that have suffered from cancer, and it's painful. But that's what's happening to us spiritually, and God wants us to be made whole so that we can enjoy our relationship with Him and live with Him forever. Well, there are three elements in God's plan in our text. The first is that the Father enables it. Chapter 2, 28 to 3, 3. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. John begins, and now, little children. He's an elderly pastor lovingly caring for his flock. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see, Jesus is coming back one day, and we each will appear before him, and we'll have one of two responses. We'll either have confidence or we'll have shame. We'll either receive him joyfully or we will be filled with utter disgrace as we're cast away into eternal darkness. And so how is it that we can have confidence at his coming? He tells us in the next verse, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. A divine paternity will result in a divine lifestyle that will give us confidence on that day of our divine meeting with Jesus. And you may be asking, well, what does it mean to be born of God? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man is born of God, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, even though he was a religious leader, couldn't understand that. He said, Jesus, I've already been born. How can I be born again? And Jesus said, it's not really that hard to understand. Humans give birth to humans. And so the Spirit of God can give birth to the Spirit of God in the life of human beings. Only the process of conception is different. John already told us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, what the process of spiritual conception looks like. He said, if anyone receives Jesus, and if you believe in his name, you are given the right to become children of God. Children born not of the will of man, nor of the desire of the flesh, but born of God. Being born of God is something that is done by God through His Spirit in the heart of those people who have faith in Jesus Christ. And it is these people who will be confident on the day when Jesus returns. Then John stops to think about this kind of love. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, see. He says, hold on a minute. We've just started to talk about something unbelievable. Behold, or another translation has, imagine the amazing nature of this love. John says, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The word there literally means of another country. Or we might say in our English colloquial expression, it's a love that's out of this world. This is a word that was used, for instance, in Mark 13, 1, about the stones of the temple that were huge stones. And as people looked at them, they said, in fact, the NIV has what massive stones these are. 
And so God's love is massive, but it's not just massive. It's, it's a kind of love that has never been seen in these parts before. Behold, my friends, the manner of love, as we just sung, how can it be that God would make of rebellious people his very own children? But it doesn't even end there. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that right now we're children of God. We have all the rights of the children of the king, but he says that isn't even the half of it. I think what he's saying is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived of the things that God has prepared for those of us who love him. Being children of God ushers us into a future that is absolutely glorious beyond description. And we don't even know yet all what that is going to be like. But he says, one thing we do know, verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One day, we're going to see Jesus with these eyes, not the eyes of faith. We'll see him directly in all of his glory and majesty and holiness. And the text says, when we, his children, see him, in that instant, we're going to be transformed to be like Jesus. You might say, what does that mean? Well, Colossians 3, 4 says, one thing it means is that our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And we'll have those bodies for all of eternity. But I think the main thing that John is getting at is that we are going to be like Jesus in moral purity on that day. On that day, sin will be completely gone from our lives. It will have no hold over us, no attraction for us, no sting for us. But we will be pure and holy like our Savior Jesus. Do you long for that day? When the cancer of sin is completely eradicated from your life? If you do, then you're going to do what verse 3 says. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you're longing for that day, you're going to be working in his strength to get rid of the sin in your life so that you can receive him without shame. John begins this section with the ending, the final condition. He says, the love of the Father is so great that he's made us his children and in his great plan of salvation, he is going to one day eliminate sin completely from our lives and from where God lives in heaven. There's a second element of God's plan of salvation, and that is that the son's labor enacts it. The son's labor enacts it, chapter 3, verses 4 to 8. In order for God to accomplish this plan, something had to be done about sin. You see, there was a legal entanglement that we needed to be set free from, and that's where Jesus comes in. There's two reasons in this section that the Son of God appeared. First, in verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. John is repeating what he told us in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word means literally to pick up and to carry away and to remove. It's what you do with that old sofa in your basement. You pick it up and you carry it away and you dump it in the dumpster and it's gone. That's why Jesus came into the world. But in order for him to do that, he had to get at the root of the problem. 
You see, God has made as an inviolable principle of his universe this reality that the wages of sin is death. The only way you can remove sin and get rid of it is by a death. Where there is sin, there will be blood. Either the blood of the sinner or of a righteous substitute. And that's, of course, what Jesus did. The world prescribes an aspirin for our headache when the cancer of sin is eating us away inside and Jesus gets to the core of the problem. And in order for us to be released from the shackles of sin, there must be a death. John has already referred to this in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 2, when he says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. We've looked at that verse before. It simply means that Jesus, in his death on the cross and his suffering for us, was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He took our guilt upon himself. He bore our sins, and he paid the price so that we could be legally free from any claim against us. That's why in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says God is faithful and, not just faithful, but faithful and just to forgive us our sins whenever we confess to him. He is just because he has paid the price for it. And all we must do now is simply confess it to him. He puts it to Jesus' account and we are set free. You see, there's a legal transaction when the Son of God appeared once for all, Hebrews 9.26, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, what happened is that he took all of our sin on himself and he gave us all of his righteousness because in him there is no sin. There's been a legal transaction happening. The, the labor of the Son on the cross has enacted God's plan of salvation by paying the price for the sins of those who believe in him. But the second reason Jesus appeared is in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? He is the great cancer donor. He is the one who tries to make sin attractive so that we will bite and ingest it. See, if you offered me a plate of cancer, and said, now here's some lymphoma for you, here's some melanoma over here, and here there's a nice, nice serving of colon cancer, would you please eat it? Well, of course, you and I would recoil from that. That's insane. And so what does Satan do? He dresses it up, he mixes a recipe around, and he does what the old woman in the Snow White story did, who put the poison in a delicious, beautiful golden apple so that Snow White would eat it and die. That's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. He deceived Satan. He deceived Adam and Eve by telling them that this was going to be good for them. This is the work of Satan. He is the great serpent, it says in Revelation 12, who leads the entire world astray. And he's trying to do the same thing this morning in your life and mine. He tried it with Jesus in the wilderness. Spurgeon says, the devil is at work in you as a smith at his forge. He is inside your heart and your brain hammering away to try to get you to not see the reality of sin and to think that sin is so pleasant and delightful that you can just partake of it without any worries at all. That is the work of the devil. And what did Jesus come to do? To destroy the works of the devil. Now, the word does not mean to annihilate them. It's not like he dropped a, a nuclear bomb on them. 
The word literally simply means to unloose or to untie. And the idea is that things that have kept us in bondage, in shackles, in chains, those are the things that God, through Jesus, has released us from. And so now, according to the scriptures, that debt that was written against us has been nailed to the cross. It has been paid. And through the cross, it says that Jesus has triumphed over the powers and authorities of this world. You see, Jesus has taken away any ammunition, any weapon that Satan has against us. And through his spirit, he opens our eyes to understand the true nature of sin, and he is thereby disarmed and bound the strong man so that we can be free from his power. The work of Jesus on the cross provides legal emancipation from our bondage to sin and the devil's schemes. So we've seen in the future, God's plan is one day to completely get rid of sin in the life of his children. In the past, he sent his son to bear sin, to take it away, to get rid of it. But now in our third section, the third element of God's plan of salvation, John talks about the present, because that's where you and I live. And the third element of God's plan of salvation is the Spirit's life empowers it. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. You may have noticed that we didn't look at every phrase in verses 4 to 8. There's a lot of repetition in John. His writing style is not linear. It's more circular. And so if you, if you think, I already heard that, well, you probably did just a few verses earlier. He, he continually repeats himself, and he comes back to the same themes again and again. For instance, in 2.29, he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In verse 8 of chapter 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. But now in verse 9, he summarizes all of those statements in a very stunning sentence. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. One of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand because if you and I are honest, that's not where we are. It is quite possible for me to sin. And yet, verse 9 says, I can't sin. Here's how the verse diagrams. It's actually a, a beautifully poetic way that it's put together. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The key to understanding this is to look at the verb tense that's involved here. Now, some of our translations, the New King James and the RSV, say whoever has been born of God does not sin. In fact, he cannot sin. And that's one of the versions I grew up with. And so I read this verse and I thought, I wonder what that really means. It, I, I do not sin and I cannot sin, but that, that like must have nothing to do with me because that's not my experience. Well, the verb tense, and here you need to know just a little Greek, is the present continuous tense, which in Greek means a habit or a continual practice of sin. And that's why the ESV, for instance, has whoever makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep on sinning. And what John is saying is that if you are a child of God, sin will not be a dominant habit in your life. Now, some think that this passage teaches sinless perfection. 
that once you've reached a certain stage of the Christian life, or even as some churches teach, if you've had a second work of grace in your life, you eventually get to the place where you don't sin anymore. And the problem with that view is that all of these phrases in 1 John 3 are speaking of everyone who is born of God, not a certain select group. And John has also already told us in verse 8 of chapter 1 that if we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so John's point, I think, is this, that even as Christians, we are going to sin. We should sin less and less, but we will never become sinless in this life. But how is it that we will sin less and less? Is it by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps? The key is in verse 9, and there are two important conjunctions there, for and because. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because, because why? Because he has been born of God. Now, John uses a striking word here in verse 9. And I suspect you will soon forget everything else in this sermon except this Greek word I'm about to teach you. Because as soon as I tell you the Greek word, you're going to know what it means. This is the only place in the Bible that this Greek word is used of God. But what John literally says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's sperma lives in him. Yeah, you heard that right. You see, as, as beautiful as the picture of adoption is, and, and it does portray a part of our relationship with God, this is something much deeper and more profound. What, he's, what he is saying is that the children of God are not simply those who God says, okay, I'll take you into my family as you are. No, the children of God are those people in whom his seed is, in whom his sperm is. And what is that seed? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God. When you're reborn, when you're regenerated, God puts his Holy Spirit inside you, as we've talked about, and God's life comes and lives inside you. He is implanted in us through the word of God when we hear it and believe it and receive it. And John's point is this new life is going to have the DNA of its father. And if the father loves righteousness and hates wickedness, then the child with that same DNA is going to love righteousness and hate wickedness. And if the child doesn't, it's probably an illegitimate child. That's what he's saying. If there is no evidence of the divine DNA, it's probably not a child of God's at all. We have a saying in English, like father, like son. Last week I was over at our son's house and they have a beautiful three-year-old boy that we've fallen hard and heavy for. Uh, he was in a particularly cuddly mood that day and was on my lap and he was kind of feeling my, my face, you know, my ears and my cheeks and my hair. And then he got to my nose and he said something I will never forget. He said, Grandpa, you have a sharp nose. <laughs> it reminded me of the words in Song of Solomon 7.4, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon pointing towards Damascus. <laughs> So I did a little research. I didn't like that. I prefer the message translation, which says, your profile turns all heads, commanding attention. <laughs> so the Irwin profile turns all heads and commands attention. That's what we want. But I wanted to look at Titus and say, son, just wait. 
the Irwin DNA that's come through my father into me, into my son, is in you. And one day your grandson will look at you and say, Grandpa, you have a sharp nose. John says it's the same thing spiritually. This actually isn't very complicated at all. How do you prove spiritual paternity? You just look at the fruit. Now, proving paternity, unfortunately, has become a very important legal science in our culture. But with DNA testing, it's not hard to do, and the results are indisputable in a court of law. John says, how can you tell who the children of God and who the children of the devil are? Well, look at verse 10. By this it is evident. It's easy to tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's only two paternities. You're either a child of God that lives like he wants you to, or you're a child of the devil continuing in his deception. And how do you tell? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that's a theme that we're going to pick up next week, loving our brother. You see, God's plan of salvation is to completely eradicate sin from our lives. Not just legally so that we can squeak into heaven, but experientially right now. He wants to heal us right now from our cancer because it's killing us. In the Old Testament, he told his people what they needed to do. 600 and some laws. And you know what the problem was? They knew the right path, but they couldn't walk on it. And for generation after generation, they failed. And that's what many of the religions of our world today do. They will tell you the right path, but they don't give you any help in walking on that path. And that's why we read the passage from Ezekiel. When God said, this old covenant, as it says in Hebrews, was futile. It was broken. It didn't work. So he said, the time is coming when I will wash you with clean water, with the blood of Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to do something else. I'm going to pour my spirit in you, and I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I'm going to take your heart of stone out, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, which is my spirit who's going to live in you, and that spirit is going to want to do righteousness and to hate wickedness. And if you don't see any sign of that spirit... Maybe you haven't been born of God at all. And that is a question John wants you to ask of yourself today. Mark said last week, believing in Jesus means living like Jesus. And that's very true. But I would add from our text today, living like Jesus because Jesus lives in us. You see, this isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of sermon. This is what God has already done for us in His Son and by sending His Spirit. He has transformed us so that we're new people. And if there's no evidence of that, then you need to question whether you've been born again or not. In August of 1992, my brother-in-law went in for an annual physical, and his doctor's office looked at his blood work and said his blood counts were off. They sent him to a hospital for further testing, and when they saw his blood counts, they said, you know, even the machine at your GP's office was not good enough to analyze your blood. Now we know what's wrong with you. And so our first lesson today from that story is this. We need the right machine to diagnose us. If you're using a machine that doesn't show you the deep inner parts of how your spirit is put together and the, the ravages of sin, you will never want the cure that he has for you. So when my brother-in-law finally got the proper diagnosis... It was that he had acute myelocytic leukemia. And in 
layman's terms, and I'll have to explain it that way because I'm not a doctor. So this is how I understand it. Basically, he had a chromosomal abnormality in the marrow of his bones that at this stage now began to produce unhealthy white blood cells and not the red blood cells and the platelets that he needed to survive. So what was the option? Well, you use chemotherapy and you start to kill that bad marrow and those bad cells. And so they, they blasted him with chemotherapy and they, they tried to get the good cells to reproduce and to take over again and it didn't work. He got a fever of 105 degrees for several days. He went septic and he was about to die. Well, they finally got it under control temporarily with continued chemotherapy, but he lived the next two years under the specter of this disease because if you have acute myelocytic leukemia, the question is not whether it's going to return, and not if it's going to return, but when it's going to return. And sure enough, two years later, he went in for a routine, again, blood check. They said, your counts are so low that you're at death's door. At that point, there was only one option left. He needed to have everything inside of his bones obliterated and destroyed. That old material that had been producing death-giving blood cells. But then he needed something new introduced into his system. Now, in his case, they had harvested some of his good stem cells a couple of years earlier and frozen them. And so what they did at this point in time is they gave him a lethal dose of chemotherapy that obliterated all of his bone marrow. And then they introduced back into his system those good stem cells that they had frozen from two years earlier. And the hope was, and by God's grace, this is what happened. The new stem cells took place, created new marrow in him that produced the proper blood cells. And today he is doing well, pastoring in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's seen his three kids grow up and has two grandchildren now, by God's grace. That doesn't always happen with cancer, but the reason I share that story is because that's exactly what you and I need as well. You see, we have that old chromosomally abnormal marrow in our bones. We've inherited from our ancestors. And everything that we try to do is tainted by that. And what we need is that old bone marrow to be obliterated. And that's what happens when we believe in Jesus and his death on the cross. The scripture says that we die with him on the cross and our old self is put to death. He cleans it out. But he doesn't just kill that because if that's all he did, we would die. What he then does is he puts his Holy Spirit in us. He infuses us with a new life that does not have that bad gene in it. And so we can again live now a fresh, new, healthy life. And that's what John is telling us in this passage. God's plan is to get rid of sin completely. And he does it through Jesus killing it and through the Spirit now giving us life instead. The old has gone. The new has come. And we are transformed because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you are transformed, there will be some evidence of it in your life, is his point. That's why you will not go on sinning. That is why you cannot continue to sin, because that new life inside of you is going to prevent you from loving wickedness. So we've had a quick historical view. We've, we've looked at the past, at what 
Jesus has done to remove the sin and to deal with it, to clean it out of our system. We've looked at the future, that glorious day when Jesus is going to come back and we will see him and be like him as he is. But, but right now as we close, we're talking about this middle part of the picture, the life that you and I live right now. And the question for you this morning is, are you born of God or not? And if so, what evidence of it is there in your life? What do I do if I'm pretty sure I'm not born of God this morning? And there may be some of you here this morning that have never entered this transaction with Jesus. Well, the, the great news is you can be cured of your cancer this morning. In fact, there will be some midwives up here at the front at the end of the service. <laughs> we would love to show you what it means to believe in Jesus and receive him and be born not of the will of man, but born of God and have this life implanted in you. Some of you may be asking this question that I've asked many times in my life. How many times does sinning equal keeping on sinning? You tracking with me? How do we know if it's just an isolated sin like David with Bathsheba or Peter when he denied Christ and when it becomes a habit that disqualifies me from being called a child of God? And The Bible's answer is 490 times. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, you were hoping for an answer. Jesus did say that we should forgive our brother 70 times 7, so he's going to forgive us 490 times, right? You didn't get that. <laughs> there is no number that the Bible gives because we're not a legalistic religion. What the text is saying is that if you continually fall into sin, time after time after time, if there is no evidence of the life of God transforming you, then yes, you need to seriously question whether you've ever been born of God or not. I don't know where that line is. But you know your heart today. It's, it's time to sweep sin out of your house. Maybe it's just some dust bunnies that have accumulated a, a look here or a word there that you need to stop. Maybe it's some mud clods that have crept in and things that you're just not willing to deal with. And maybe it's a stinking, rotten rat carcass that is in your home smelling up the whole thing. It needs to go out. Spurgeon said, do not say, I cannot help it. You must help it, or rather Christ must destroy it. And he will if he lives in you today. And then finally, some of you may say, I sense the Spirit of God is alive in me, but my progress is so slow and so weak. I, how can I be more transformed to be like Jesus? And that's a great question. It's not one that John answers in our text today. There are many other passages of Scripture that speak to that, where Paul, for instance, says we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. He says we must put off the old man and put on the new man. He says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Peter says that we must make every effort to add to our faith godliness and love. And Paul says we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, there are things that we need to do, but essentially 1 John is not an epistle of do's and don'ts, as one commentator said. It's an epistle of done, that God has done it in His Son and in His Spirit. And the only imperatives left in this passage are two, and I'll leave you with these. The first imperative is, we've already seen chapter 3, verse 1, behold. First thing that you need to do is behold Jesus. 
and his love for you. Not think about your sin all the time, but look at Jesus. And as we behold his glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we will be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Behold, and the only other imperative other than be not deceived is in verse 28, and now little children abide in him. He abides in us. His seed abides in us. Now we need to abide in Him. We need to remain in Him. We need to feed on Him. We need to let His life grow full and strong in us. And as we do that, we will see the life of Jesus begin to squeeze to the very corners of our life and eventually out of it completely the cancer of sin. Well, I hope that now you understand God's plan of salvation he doesn't just want to get you into heaven. He wants to get the sin out of you and me. That's his plan. And he's provided everything we need for it. This incredibly expensive cure, the blood of Christ, and the subsequent gift of the Spirit is yours for the taking. It's free. But he wants us to experience heaven now and for all of eternity. To look forward to that day when we will be completely healed and set free and we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your great love for us, that you would make us your own children, that you would put your seed inside of us, your life. And oh, Father, we want that to grow big and strong. We want to be more like that. We confess that we do give room too often to things that have no place in the life of a child of God. And we thank you that as we confess, you are faithful and just to forgive us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen.